Well, I do invite you to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. We're going through Zechariah, and uh, we are in chapter 3 at this point, in vision 4. Now, we've been looking at the eight different visions that Zechariah had in one night. And uh, all of these visions, they all relate to one another. And I mentioned this previously. We talked about the first vision, uh, where there's a man on a red horse, and it shows how God is active even when it seems like he is silent. And this first vision relates to the eighth vision, the four chariots, which we'll talk about later on. We talked about the second vision, the horns and the craftsmen. And this vision shows how the ultimate craftsman and the ultimate conqueror is Jesus Christ. And this vision relates to the seventh vision, woman in the basket, which we'll discuss later. Then there was the third vision, the measuring cord, uh, which talked about how God will restore Jerusalem, how God will dwell in Jerusalem, and His presence will be in that city and in that nation with the people. And this relates to the sixth vision, the flying scroll, which we'll get to shortly. And today, we come to the fourth vision, the fourth vision, which focuses on the role of the high priest, and it shows the priestly work of the Messiah. And this relates to the fifth vision. Now, you can see that these visions all come together like an arrow, and they point uh, or they focus on the two visions, four and five, the high priest and the lampstand. And they focus on that because those two visions discuss specifically the Messiah and the work of the Messiah. And that is because the Messiah is at the center of God's plan of redemption. Now, up to this point, the visions have been sh- uh, that we've seen, they've shown that God is active. They, they've shown that God will judge the nations, that he will establish Jerusalem, and that he will dwell in the, in the land of the people of Israel. But as we consider these, this raises a question for us. How is holy God going to dwell with sinful Israel? How can holy God dwell with, dwell with any sinful man or any sinful people? We know that God cannot coexist with sin. This is why God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. This is why God sent the flood and destroyed nearly the entire human race. Now you might say Israel isn't like the flood generation. They're God's chosen people. Well, that's true, but they were still sinners. You have Aaron, the high priest. What does Aaron the high priest do? He builds a golden calf in the, in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 32, and the people as a nation, they commit outright idolatry. Aaron has two sons, Nadab and Abihu, priests in Israel. What do they do? They offer strange fire before the Lord in Leviticus 10, and God cannot tolerate that, so God incinerates them on the spot. God cannot dwell with sin or with sinners. That's who we are. Isaiah tells us that our life without God is filthy. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Without God, our lives are completely, thoroughly, and comprehensively filthy. 
And this verse in Isaiah describes an image that is similar to the vision that we're going to see today, to the vision that Isaiah, uh, that Zechariah saw in his fourth uh, vision. A high priest who is covered in filthy garments. But if this is who Israel is, then how is it that God promises to Israel that he is going to dwell among the people of Israel who are covered with filth, who are covered with sin? How is God going to dwell with them? Well, this is what the next vision answers for us. It shows us, or God shows us in this vision, that the Messiah will remove the sin of Israel so that the people of Israel will become righteous, and then God will dwell with righteous Israel, with the righteous people. So as we look at this vision, we see the priestly work of the Messiah. And we see four actions that the Messiah achieves to make sinners righteous. And we'll see the Messiah's work of intercession, the Messiah's work of cleansing, the Messiah's work of reconciliation, and then the Messiah's work of ultimate salvation, or we can say ultimate redemption. Now, the vision begins by showing, first of all, the Messiah's work of intercession. Even though Joshua, the high priest in Israel, And as we look at him, by implication, it's all of Israel and all of mankind. Even though we're all sinful, the Messiah intercedes for sinful man, and he grants forgiveness. Look at Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? The vision begins by showing that sinners need the Messiah in order to intercede for them. Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan is standing right there next to him and accusing him of various sins, and he's saying to God, he's sinful, he's not worthy. Now, this is significant because the priest, the priest's function is to mediate between God and man. So the priest represents the entire nation of Israel before God. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies every single year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and to Uh, intercede for the people of Israel. And uh, Yom Kippur, by the way, is coming up on October uh, 5th, just next week. So the priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. He would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And in that way, he would intercede for the people of Israel. And this would symbolically atone for sin so that God would continue to have a relationship with the nation of Israel. If the priest does his job acceptably, then God continues in this relationship with his people. If the priest fails, then this relationship begins to fall apart. And this is what Joshua is doing here. He's standing before the angel of Yahweh to intercede for Israel, to ask for the forgiveness of the sins of the nation. Now, you may ask me, how do we know that he's standing there specifically to intercede for the people of Israel? Well, the language here is to stand before. And as simple as it sounds, this is the very language that is used in the Bible to describe the duties of the priests when they come before God to intercede for the people. 
Deuteronomy 10.8 says that God chose the tribe of Levi to stand before Yahweh to minister before him. That's exactly what Joshua is doing here. Now, the fact that Joshua was standing before the angel of Yahweh rather than Yahweh himself, you could say, suggests that the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. Joshua is interceding for the sins of Israel, asking God to forgive the sins of Israel. But the fact is that only God can forgive the sins of Israel. Why is he going to the angel of Yahweh, not directly to Yahweh? God forgives sins. Remember that incident in the New Testament in Mark chapter 2, when certain people brought a paralytic to Jesus in order for him to heal the paralytic. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Right? Well, the scribes hear this, and the scribes say, he's committing blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's how the scribes respond. Well, they're actually right. Only God can forgive sin. And in Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions and who will not remember your sins. So it is true that God is the only one who is able to forgive sins. So in that incident, how does Jesus respond to the scribes? He says this, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your mat, and go to your home. God is, Jesus is saying that he had the authority to forgive sins. But if God is the only one who forgives sins, how is it that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? Jesus is God. And so you look at Zechariah, how is it that Joshua is standing before the angel of Yahweh and asking the angel of Yahweh to intercede for the forgiveness of Israel's sin? The angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. That is why Joshua is pleading before the angel of Yahweh, because since the angel of Yahweh is God, he can forgive sin. And the vision here shows that we absolutely need an intercessor, someone who is able to intercede for us. As Joshua is standing there before the angel of Yahweh, Satan is standing right there next to him and accusing him. Now the word Satan means accuser or to accuse, and the Hebrew literally says Satan was standing at his right hand to Satanize him, to accuse him. That's the idea here. Satan was hurling all of these objections against Joshua, saying that he's unworthy, he's a sinner, he does not, to do, he does not deserve to represent the people of Israel. The people of Israel does, do not deserve to be God's people. And Satan has always been accusing the saints. You think about Job. Satan comes into the presence of God. He accuses Job. You think about even 1 Peter 5.8, which uses similar language as Job 1. And it says, um, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So you think about it. If Satan is accusing you, don't you want the best lawyer to defend you? 
Wouldn't you appeal to the Messiah to intercede on your behalf? Well, here in Zechariah 3, Satan is accusing Joshua, accusing him of being unworthy before God. Satan is essentially saying to God, reject Israel. They've rejected you, so you reject them. And we hear this today. Israel rejected God, so God rejected Israel. But how does God respond in this passage? Will God receive Satan's accusation and then reject Joshua and reject Israel? Or will God reject Satan and intercede on behalf of Israel? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. The vision shows that the angel of Yahweh rejects Satan and he defends Israel. But here's another question. Joshua, in verse 1 we saw, Joshua is standing before the angel of Yahweh. But here in verse 2 it says, Yahweh said to Satan. So it calls the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh. What's going on here? Is it Yahweh or is it the angel of Yahweh? Well, again, the angel of Yahweh is referred to here as Yahweh because the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the pre-incarnate Christ. And the angel of Yahweh is standing here and he's interceding for Joshua for the people of Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing right now for us. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Listen to Romans 8, and 34. It says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You remove Christ from the picture, there is condemnation. Because Christ is in the picture, there is no condemnation. And the angel of Yahweh is doing this very thing of intercession in this vision. He is interceding for the people of Israel. The Messiah appeals to God the Father and he says, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. God is saying, I will not reject Israel. Israel is my people. Israel will remain my people. And then God goes on to explain this, and he says, Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? God says, Why would I reject Israel if I took them out of the fire? Why do you take a stick out of the fire that's about to burn up? Because you want to save that stick. When God saved Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah when he brought him out, God referred to him as the brand delivered from a blaze in Amos 4.11. Why does God refer to him that way? Because God saved him and God wanted to save him. Well, that's Israel. Israel was in the fires of persecution of judgment, of exile. But before they were destroyed, God snatched them out so that they wouldn't be destroyed. Because the Messiah is interceding for us, 
for Israel, I should say, the relationship between God and Israel continued in Zechariah's day. It continues today even, and it's going to continue in the future. And the same applies to us too. Because Jesus is our intercessor, we have salvation. And because of this, we can be confident that he holds and he secures our salvation in his hands. This image of Christ as the intercessor is the background to a song that we sing and that we are familiar with. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads or intercedes for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, the intercessor, who made an end to all my sin. This song takes Zechariah 3 and Job 1 and Romans 8.34 and other passages, and it puts it into lyrics so that we could sing of how the high priest intercedes for us. And you know how Spurgeon referred to this hymn? He called it the advocate. That's how Spurgeon called this song, because it's about our advocate. So this is how the vision begins. It shows how the Messiah intercedes for sinners. Now, the second part of this vision reveals the Messiah's work of cleansing, the cleansing of sinners. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Verses 3 through 5 say this, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he, the angel of Yahweh, answered and spoke to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, the angel, or the angel of Yahweh said to Joshua, he said, See, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and will clothe you with feastal robes. Then I, Zechariah, said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. The vision here shows that Joshua, the high priest of Israel, literally needed cleansing. It says that he was clothed with filthy garments. And the scene is appalling. Joshua, who is supposed to represent Israel before God, he himself is covered with filth. The word filthy is a very strong and an explicit word, refers to dung, refers to excrement. We don't often think about the repugnance of sin in God's eyes. We know sin is bad. We know that God hates sin. But we must understand that sin is absolutely repulsive to God. God shows here that sin is like excrement. And this is especially problematic for a priest. The garments of the priest needed to be pure. They needed to be clean so that the priest could intercede for the, for the cleansing of Israel. If the priest is filthy, then he cannot intercede acceptably before God. And Joshua is covered in filth. So there is no way that he can effectively stand before God and intercede for the people of Israel. 
And this is why the angel of Yahweh has to act and has to make Joshua clean. And that's what we see happening here. The angel of Yahweh, the Messiah, he begins to take action. He begins to cleanse Joshua. The pre-incarnate Christ, he says to the angels, remove the filthy garments from him. But then, once his filthy garments are removed, notice what the angel says. He says, I have made your iniquity pass away from you. He doesn't say we. He doesn't say Joshua and I. Joshua does absolutely nothing in this scene. He doesn't even speak. The angel of Yahweh is the only one who removes Joshua's sin. So you think about Paul, and you understand that he did not invent the theology of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. God was always the only one who acts to save sinners. Joshua played absolutely no part in removing his own filthy clothing. It was all done by the angel of Yahweh, by the pre-incarnate Christ. But the removal of sin is only the first part of what is done here. To be truly clean, you have to put on clean clothes as well. And this is what we see happen here. So the angel of Yahweh said, I will clothe you with festal robes. It's not only about having sin removed. It's also about receiving the righteousness of Christ and being declared righteous before God because of the righteousness of Christ. And like Joshua, our robes were at one point filthy if we are believers. Even our righteous deeds, the philanthropic actions, they were all filthy rags without Christ. But Christ took away our filth and took away our sin to give us the new robes of His righteousness. And the way that Christ declares people righteous is by covering them in His own righteousness. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is about. He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And you know what this means? The filth that Joshua was covered with, Christ took it upon himself. Christ went to the cross. And because of the filth, Christ died. But when Christ rose from the dead, he gave his righteousness to every sinner who repents before Christ. Now, something fascinating happens at this point of the vision. As Joshua is being dressed in clean clothing so that he could carry out his priestly duties to intercede for the people of Israel, Zechariah, who is seeing the vision, he's not in the vision, but he's seeing the vision, he jumps in and he starts talking as if he's part of the vision. This is kind of like when you start talking in your sleep. You're dreaming and then all of a sudden you start talking. And Zechariah says, let them put a clean turban on his head. Zechariah is liking what he is seeing. He is excited and he cannot contain himself. So he says, let them complete all of the priestly attire and let them put the turban on the priest's head. And this priestly turban, this hat, would have had the words, holy to Yahweh. 
And the reason Zechariah is excited about this is because he wants Joshua to intercede for the people of Israel so that the people of Israel become holy to Yahweh. Now, here's another fascinating part about this. The word Zechariah uses for turban is not the usual word for a head covering for a priest. The word he uses refers to a royal crown or a royal diadem. It's used in places like Isaiah 62. It's used outside of the Bible to refer to a royal crown or a royal diadem. So Zechariah is saying here, let them put a royal turban on his head. Well, that's a problem. You can't have the same person be both a priest and a king in Israel. The priests come from Levi. The kings come from Judah. The lines don't cross, and God doesn't allow them to cross. God forbids this. When Saul, who was a king, he offered sacrifices and played the role of the priest, because of that, God took away his kingdom from him. This is in 1 Samuel 13. So Zechariah was requesting something very unusual here. And the angel should have said, you can't actually have that. I can give them the priestly turban, but I can't give them the royal turban. But looking at the text, the text uses the very same language, and it says they put a clean turban on his head. Why does it do that? So that Joshua could now be portrayed as a priest king to show what the Messiah would become, what the Messiah would be, a priest king. And this same image of a priestly king Messiah appears in Psalm 110. It appears later on in Zechariah 6 that we'll look, uh, look at. And only the Messiah can fulfill this. And God was shown here that while no man could assume the role of a priest and a king, the Messiah could and the Messiah will. He alone is the king at the right hand of God, and he alone is the priest interceding for sinners. So we can ask that same question. How is it that holy God will, will live with sinful people? He will cleanse them as their priest, and then he will reign over them as their king, ruling over a righteous people. Well, third, the vision goes on to reveal the Messiah's work of reconciliation. The Messiah will achieve reconciliation in the relationship between God and Israel. To an extent in Zechariah's time, as long as the people are submissive to God, but ultimately in the future, when all of Israel repents. In Zechariah's time, there was plenty of reason to wonder, will God restore Israel? The Israelites just spent 70 years in exile. Jerusalem was torn down. The temple was not built. The enemies were attacking Israel. And so the question is, has God rejected Israel? Is the relationship between God and Israel over? Or will God restore it? Well, after revealing the Messiah's work of intercession and cleansing, the vision now confirms God's covenant with Israel, God's commitment to Israel, God's plan to reconcile Israel to himself and to have a relationship with the people of Israel. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the angel of Yahweh testified to Joshua, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, 
If you will walk in my ways and if you will keep the responsibility given by me, then you will also render justice in my house and also keep my courts. And I will grant you access to walk among these who are standing here. God is saying here that I have not rejected you, Israel. You will be reconciled to me, both now in the time of Zechariah to a certain extent, but also ultimately in the future in the millennial kingdom when the people repent. And as God promises this reconciliation, he says that there are three parts to this. First, there is a responsibility to obey God. There is a responsibility on the people of God, expected of the people of God, to obey God. God says here, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep the responsibility given by me. This is the language of covenant. If, then. And Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, 27, they talk about the blessings and the curses. If you will obey me, I will have a relationship with you. And so part of this covenant is for Israel to obey God and to walk in his ways. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses gives a covenantal charge to the people of Israel. And he says, What does Yahweh your God ask from you but for you to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh? God is saying in the vision that the covenant that God made with Israel still stands. But this means that there is an expectation of Joshua and all of Israel and all of God's people to walk in God's ways, to live a life of obedience. Being reconciled to God means walking in God's ways. That's exactly how Moses described Enoch's life, who obeyed God, who walked with God. In Genesis 5.24, Moses says, Enoch walked with God. That's a summary of his life. And the word for walk here, the form of it, it conveys the idea of daily walking with God, habitually walking with God, continuously walking with God. Because that's what God demands, that we obey God with our whole life. Now here in the vision, God is calling Joshua and the priests specifically to keep their priestly responsibilities. The priests were supposed to maintain the temple grounds, the altar, the worship activities that take place around the temple. And they did this historically, but they failed. That's why exile happened. But Ezekiel says that they will do this in the millennium in righteousness. So this call to obedience applies to the priests in Zechariah's time, and it points to the future, to the millennium, when they will fulfill this in righteousness as well. And this means that God will have a relationship with Israel in the future. So first, there is the responsibility to obey God. Secondly, part of this reconciliation is the reward of worship. If Joshua and the priests keep the responsibility to obey God, God will give them the reward, the ability of worshiping Him, the way they were always supposed to worship God. Zechariah says that if you obey, then you will also render justice in my house and also keep my courts. When the priests obey, God will give them the reward of rendering justice and keeping his courts. Both of these are a means of worshiping God. Again, historically, the priests 
helped to resolve various disputes among the people. They tried to render justice to the Israelites, but again, they couldn't because of the sin. But Ezekiel says that the priests will render justice and they will judge by God's judgments in the millennium. And because the priests will render God's judgment, it will be righteous judgment. And because it will be righteous judgment, it will be a perfect expression of worship of God. Now it says here that the priests will also keep the courts, meaning that they will offer sacrifices to God, offer acceptable sacrifices to God. The courts were places where the priests were supposed to bring these sacrifices on a regular basis, but the courts became the place where Israelites offered unacceptable, wicked sacrifices. Isaiah 1.12 addresses there this, and God says there, When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Their sacrifices were nothing but trampling and noise. You know, you think about a church today that is active, that is busy, but is completely godless. That's what Isaiah 1 is describing. Being reconciled to God means that the people will bring acceptable sacrifices of worship. So this reconciliation includes the responsibility to obey God and the reward of worshiping God properly. And then the third part of reconciliation will be a restored relationship with God. In verse 7, the angel of Yahweh says to Joshua, I will grant you access to walk among these who are standing here. Who are these who are standing here with Yahweh God? Well, in Isaiah 6, we see that these are the angels who are saying, Holy, holy, holy. So to have access to walk among the angels means that the priests can move freely in the presence of God, just like the angels move in the presence of God. This will be the ultimate expression of reconciliation, this intimate communion with God. And this points to the millennium, and it even points to the eternal state. Now, of course, the priests will experience this in a different way than all of us would, because their role as priests that they will carry out in the millennium. But as we think about this for ourselves... We also look forward to that day when we will have such free access in the presence of God. We look forward to that day as 1 John 2.3 says, We will be like Him because we will see Him, Christ, just as He is. This will be the Messiah's work of reconciliation for Israel. As Christ reconciles Israel and as Christ reconciles all things to Himself. Well, finally... The vision reveals the Messiah's work of ultimate salvation, or we can say redemption, when sin is removed and peace fills the world. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have put before Joshua, on that stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares Yahweh of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. 
In that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, every one of you will call for his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. In this final part of the vision, God gives a glimpse of a future scene where the priests of Israel and the people of Israel, and by implication, all of us, all of the nations, will live in sinlessness and in peace. The friends that he refers to here sitting in front of Joshua are Joshua's fellow priests. And they're called a wondrous sign because they symbolize a future time of redemption that only God can achieve. The redemption, the ultimate salvation that only God can bring about. And the vision specifies then that this work is achieved specifically by the Messiah. And the Messiah receives three names here. He is called my servant, he's called the branch, and he's called the stone. And the title servant refers to those people that God uses in a special way to carry out his will, to carry out his purposes. So you can think about people like Abraham or Moses and Caleb, David. All of those people uh, received the name my servant from God. But the ultimate person who receives this title is the Messiah. You think about Isaiah 53, right? It begins in chapter 52, 13 with the statement, Behold, my servant will prosper. And then Isaiah 53, 11 draws to a conclusion uh, that discussion, and it ends with, My servant will justify the many. So as the ultimate servant, the Messiah will fulfill God's plan of redemption. He's called my servant. The Messiah is also called the branch. And Pastor John brought, pointed out that in the Old, in the Old Testament, uh, the term the branch, when it's referring to the Messiah, is used in four different ways, which the New Testament then picks up and develops. So first of all, the Messiah is called a branch of David, and this speaks of his role as a king. In the New Testament, this is the very depiction of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus as king. Secondly, here in Zechariah, the Messiah is called the branch as the suffering servant. And in the New Testament, this is the depiction of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark as a suffering servant. Then the Messiah is called the man whose name is the branch, bringing out his perfect humanity. And this is the picture of Jesus in Luke. Christ as the perfect man. And finally, the Messiah is called the branch of Yahweh, which brings out his deity. And this is the portrait of Jesus in the Gospel of John, Jesus as the God-man. All of these roles come together in the one person, the Messiah, Jesus, as he achieves this final and ultimate salvation. Now, the Messiah is also referred to here as the stone, the branch, my servant, and the stone. And the stone is a common title for the Messiah. We see it in Isaiah 8.14, the Messiah is called a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We see it in the New Testament in Ephesians 2.20, where Jesus is the chief cornerstone in the church. And there's many other places where the Messiah is referred to as the stone. And in this passage, the vision has, shows that this stone has seven eyes, and these seven eyes symbolize omniscience, perfect omniscience. 
The Messiah is the all-knowing and all-powerful Messiah. And that sounds a lot like God. And that is no accident. Then it says here that the stone will have an inscription. And the question is, what will this inscription be? Well, the verse says that the inscription is related to the removal of iniquity. And in Israel, a craftsman would uh, take two stones and he would write the 12 tribes of Israel on those stones. And then those stones, two small stones, would go on the uniform of the high priest because the high priest would go and he would intercede for the nation of Israel. Well, here this inscription has the same function of salvation. So more than likely, the inscription has the names of the elect whom whom the Messiah saves as the Messiah achieves God's plan of redemption. Now, as we take all of this, we can ask, so when will all of this take place? When will all of it happen? The vision says that this redemption will take place in one day. And the basis for the salvation is what happened at Calvary, when Jesus went to the cross and took away the sins of the world on that cross. But the specific day when all of this is fulfilled will be that day when Israel looks upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn over him, and they will repent, as Zechariah 12.10 says. And on that day, all Israel will be saved, as Paul says in Romans 11. And that will usher in the return of Christ and the start of the millennium. And that's when the neighbors, neighbors will sit under their vine and under their fig tree. We got a glimpse of this a little bit in Israelite history. In 1 King 4, it says that Solomon had peace all over Israel so that the, every man sat under his vine and his fig tree. Well, Zechariah here describes a time that will surpass the golden age of Solomon. There will be global peace, global prosperity, global rejuvenation of all of creation. This will take place in the millennium because the millennium will be under the reign of the one who is greater than King Solomon. It will be King Jesus Christ. So when the Messiah returns, he will achieve this ultimate salvation for mankind and he will achieve peace for the earth itself. This is the center of Zechariah's eight visions. Christ's saving work and God's plan of redemption. In the midst of these amazing visions that Zechariah receives, God has us focus on the work of the one and on the one himself that we must never forget. And that is the Messiah, Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, the only thing we can say after seeing what you have revealed to us, is praise God. Hallelujah. Lord, may the nations praise God. Lord, thank you for the redemption that you have achieved by going to the cross, Lord Jesus, by dying for our sins, and by working through our lives and sanctifying us as we look forward to that time of perfection of sinlessness, of rejuvenation, of recreation. Lord, when we will dwell with you in perfect, in a perfect relationship. Lord God, I pray that we would take this to heart, that this would motivate us to look at you, that it, was, that it would anchor us in your truth, 
and that it would help us to love you more and to worship you more. Lord, I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.